Machine learning models must first be trained. That training results in a model which must be serialized or packaged up in some way as a deployment artifact. A popular deployment path is using TensorFlow.js to take advantage of the portability of JavaScript, allowing your model to be run on a web server or the client. Gant Laborde is Chief Innovation Officer at Infinite Red, a React Native consulting team, and the author of Learning TensorFlow.js, Powerful Machine Learning and JavaScript from O'Reilly. In this interview, we explore the use cases for TensorFlow.js. Gant, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Good to have me. <laughs> <laughs> to kick off, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started as a developer? Oh, well, I can tell you my family was, well, my dad was anti-computers, 100% uh, so of course I was very interested in. I would play video games, I had an old Nintendo system, and finally work made him have a computer, and I started messing around on it, probably broke it three or four times, but then one day I got it to say, hello, Gant, you're writing Quick Basic, and that was it. That's it. I, I was into programming from that day forward, using the help file to learn how to code. And my dad said, uh, you have to wrestle. <laughs> if you ever see me, I don't, you know, you're like, oh, look at this guy. I had to wrestle in order to get my first computer for Christmas. <laughs> and so I got that computer, went to college for computer science. I don't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> it was it was a lot of time and energy for me to just come out and do all the fun pragmatic things that I'm doing now. But I had that computer all through college as well. It was the uh, <laughs> my high school wrestling computer had to last me. It was a Pentium running Windows 98 for the longest time, and then I got into just building cool stuff for people. And I really enjoyed that. And that sort of like pushed me through the college career and into my professional career. And oddly enough, I think I'm kind of doing the same thing now. I'm just building cool stuff for us and for a bunch of clients looking for someone who's willing to jump into R&D and figure out how something works. When did you found Infinite Red? And uh, what do you guys get up to there? So funny story, the CEO of Infinite Red, Todd Worth, went ahead and found me. So here in New Orleans, we don't have a lot of tech. And it was a little bit difficult at first. You know, I would build a website. I didn't have anybody to show it to. And then fortunately, after a while, through the open source community and through conferences around the world, I wound up meeting some pretty intelligent and awesome people. And so I started doing consulting. I wrote my first book on Ruby Motion back in 2014. And I was doing consulting all across the U.S. I was consulting in Florida, North Carolina, and California. And so Todd was running a company called Infinite Red in California. And I found I just liked one of my clients. I just loved consulting for Infinite Red. It was my favorite thing to do uh, that was treated well. And then after a while, Todd went ahead and merged his company with ClearSight with Jamin in Portland. And so the company got bigger and it got to a point where the company was really turning into this dream job, this dream company that I always want to be a part of. And that's honestly what the initiative was. What's a company that you would want to work at? That was their sort of their mission statement to start it off. And so finally, I in 2017, 
I came to them and I said, look, I think I've hit the max of where I'm growing. They said, we see that too. And I said, I want to buy in and be a member of this company. And so I have. And since 2017, I bought in and I'm one of the three owners of Infinite Red. And we still just have a great time finding intelligent, smart people and building mobile apps and building cool stuff. What's changed about mobile apps in the times you guys have been doing that? Oh, a ton. Used to be that you'd have to watch all the keynotes to keep up with everything because in the beginning, people would show up and say, we need an iOS app. And if we have extra money, we'll get an Android app. That has changed significantly. So people show up and say, we need an iOS and Android app. And we want our team to manage that code. And we want it to be pretty much reusing that. If you can reuse some web code as well, that'd be fantastic. (laughs) Which was an impossible order in 2014. But we use uh, React Native. So we're we're in a React-based framework. And we get to actually, we have some websites that we uh, deliver a significant portion of reusable code amongst web, Android, and iOS. So JavaScript as sort of a top layer on top, sort of like, you know, the C on top of assembly. React Native is that JavaScript layer on top of those native platforms, helping us actually deliver all this cool stuff. Having done that successfully a bunch of times, you've seen the, you know, full cycle of building a React Native app. I'm aware of the concepts and I've messed around with it, but never enough where I feel like I know the gotchas. Are there any gotchas out there in the process? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The gotchas aren't where people probably would tell you they are. But the one key aspect here is that you have this bridge that you're going across when you're telling JavaScript to tell native what to do. And it does whatever you tell it to do. So if you decide to completely flood that bridge, that's you. (laughs) You did that to yourself. That was your fault. But we've gotten really good about pushing stuff down to the native in a very effective and efficient way. And the other thing that kind of comes in, I'll say as a gotcha, is it's very easy to overshare styles and code. I think that each platform has an independent feel that you need to know when to break unity between the code and and show it just a little bit different on iOS than you would on Android. So it's not like a web view that's shared, you know, you wouldn't have that. It's actually native code that feels native on one platform versus another. And I think that that's something that kind of takes a little bit of time because you can't go bring the same interface everywhere you go. You know, it's very important. If I were to do a Apple TV app, the interface that the person's interacting with is very different. But I could write that in React Native, and it could feel very unique for that platform, and then still share a lot of the business logic with an iOS app. So knowing when to do that, knowing when to break the rules, that's the hard part. Makes sense. Well, a lot of people strive to be full stack, but it's somewhat uncommon that you know React and React Native and also can write a book about TensorFlow. (laughs) How did you get versed in these two not necessarily neighboring technologies? Well, I could tell you, believe it or not, that path did go through React Native. I am the CIO at InfiniRed, which is Chief Innovation Officer. And when the there was an episode of Silicon Valley that came out where they did hot dog, not hot dog. Uh, if you're a fan of the show, you know exactly what episode I'm talking about. But that app actually exists and you can download it tomorrow or right now as you're listening to it, it completely exists. 
And you can take a picture of something and it'll tell you if it's a hot dog or not a hot dog. And when I found out that that actually was a real app written in React Native, I said, wait a second, I know everything there is to know about React Native. How do you write an app that can actually look at a photo and tell you what's in it? And, you know, this is what, 2016, 2017 that I saw this. And believe it or not, you know, it was really cool. It kind of opened my eyes to computer vision. It showed me what kind of cool things that are coming onto the horizon that we should all be figuring out how to do that are going to be features in all kinds of cool apps. So I started digging in deep, taking Coursera courses, learning everything I can, going back to my linear algebra days, and then ultimately finding out how to do computer vision and how crazy the AI revolution actually is, and all the new features and all the new things that are about to hit that we're going to have to deliver on mobile apps. It's sort of like back when we used to deliver just iOS apps, and now we have to deliver on all these platforms. I see that again coming in as people are going to come in with an AI idea, and then they're going to want AI everywhere inside of their stuff. So that that led me into a multi-year dive into learning everything possible about TensorFlow and machine learning, and ultimately writing the O'Reilly book, Learning TensorFlow.js. Well, sticking with the link there between the mobile app and computer vision, I'm wondering if you could walk through, I don't know if there are best practices or if you have just a single vision for how to do it. Do I train my model and deploy some artifact or what does the actual development process look like to get that going? Well, it's wildly unique for someone who's a developer to even conceptualize the idea of data-driven development, because the way I liken it is to uh, if you're playing a video game, if a person coded the AI in that video game previously, what they did was they coded rules, they coded instructions, and they took abstract concepts as best as they could and put them into this codified form. Whereas here's the difference for people who are new to this, and I don't want to pass over that. You said the word model, which funny enough means something different if you're using Blender versus, you know, uh, video production versus math versus AI. But it's basically a model is just a function, but the function's being trained not by a programmer, it's being trained by data. You give it a hundred examples of a hot dog and you give it a hundred examples of a bird and you say, you know, which one of these is which? And I don't actually code how to tell the difference. I let it see those examples almost like flashcards and figure that out. And that's just a mind-blowing moment for most developers right off the bat. And then you can kind of take that a step further. So in 2018, I did a talk on uh, whether someone is or is not Nicolas Cage. (laughs) It was a really fun talk. So what we did was I had to pull down hundreds and hundreds of photos of Nicolas Cage And then I had to grab other people who look like Nicolas Cage and then show the AI these photos until it could actually distinguish him uh, from anyone else. And then for the talk I did at React Native U in uh, 2018, we had someone hide in the audience with a Nicolas Cage mask on. And so we used the AI on the phone to identify him in the audience and bring him up and then retrieve the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, JavaScript isn't historically known as one of the main languages for machine learning. I'm thinking of Python, maybe R, a few other things. What gave you the idea that a whole book would be the right path to lead someone to be doing ML and JavaScript? 
Yeah. The interesting thing that comes in here is that don't ever quote me on this, but the truth is JavaScript's not my favorite language. It is the most popular language. It is the most powerful and ubiquitous language that we have there. My heart still deeply belongs to Ruby from, <laughs> from a long time ago. Love you, Matt. It's great programming language. I wish it were everywhere. But instead, we have JavaScript, and JavaScript can do amazing things. But often, it's, it's almost kind of placed as a toy language by people who see it go to things like drones or see it go to AI. JavaScript doesn't play around when it shows up. <laughs> it's got, you've seen websites that have full access to your WebGL, WebGPU, WebAssembly, being able to really tear up the speed on a computer to, to do these things. And the truth is when JavaScript and AI meet, there's sort of like this unlocking moment you know, that you can't get from Python. Perhaps uh, you'll take a look at a Python website that's got a really cool model that'll turn you into an anime character. I think there's like selfie2anime.com. If all of us hit that website right now at the same time, we'll get a message saying, sorry, you know, there's too much traffic, You know, come back later, we can't process all of these images at the same time. Well, JavaScript can run on the server and it can run directly in the browser. So if I actually put the model on your browser, you come hit the website whenever you want. I can actually use your machine, your GPU, to perform the inference for that model and do the generation of that model directly on your machine and not hit the server at all. And that's just, it's, it's not a play language. It is serious. It's here to show up and kick butt. And uh, as AI is going to a bunch of edge devices, like phones, like Raspberry Pis, like small computers, it's going to be really, really impressive to stay with JavaScript because, you know, as you know, the rule is, I think it's Atwood's Law, if, you know, if it could support JavaScript, it will. <laughs> uh-huh. What are some of the benefits of running my model at the edge on the client hardware like that? Oh, it's perfect example would be, I guess, like, if, you, if your model's not secret sauce, if it's, it's, it's a little bit of a novelty now. Like Selfie 2 Anime was the example a second ago, and it's just impressive that the, the bear is dancing. The, to, to quote, the inmates are running the asylum. You know, we're impressed that the bear is dancing, not how well the bear actually dances. But then that wears off, and now we actually care how well things actually perform. So I'll say that if I'm able to put my model on your machine, and it's directly applying hair dye, or makeup to your face and then tells you exactly what hair dye to buy and what makeup to buy to have that exact look on your face and then it's all in your cart, you just hit purchase, then I don't care about the secret sauce anymore. I'm not sending it to the server. I'm accessing your webcam. I'm giving you the model. I'm putting it all on your machine because you know now the cool part is not that it's possible but that you're getting these right now and you hit the purchase button and I make a sale because my website showed you that hair color and that makeup together and the other person's got to wait and send the stuff off to the server or doesn't even know what it would actually look like in person, I'm passing you up using AI. And then the truth is that's going to be in products everywhere pretty fast. Are there any drawbacks? I, you know, Obviously, there's the network latency you have to take on when you're going to do something on the server. But I don't know, is there a cold start problem if I have a really big model that's memory intensive or anything like that to consider? 
Well, if you're going to be putting it on the actual device, there is sometimes these models can be kind of big, especially for the web world. So if I had a 25 megabyte model, I really need to depend on my UX engineers to give me a process to give them. Have you ever heard of the elevator mirror effect? Uh, elevator mirrors actually give you multiple benefits, and that's why you always have mirrors in elevators. One of them being the passage of time while you're looking at yourself. Uh, additionally, feeling less claustrophobic, and also it keeps people behaving. So there's all these like potential needs for these large files, which web is all about precise small files. You know, how many kilobytes can I get this? How many bytes can I get this? And then I show up, I'm like, here's a 25 megabyte file we need to put on the client. <laughs> this is where design and UX and storytellers are really going to benefit and be able to do a lot. So I will say that it doesn't come at zero cost. And then also, depending on the person's machine, if there's no GPU, if it's an older machine, there is the chance that some of these models are just too advanced for the machines right now until we start to see actual AI-specific hardware come into most devices. And you'd mentioned the concern about your model being private. Maybe you don't want to get out yeah. or something like that. While I do respect that concern, it is true someone could grab it out of their local cache or something. Do you find that that's a concern for most enterprise companies? That's going to be a concern for people who are specifically in a data science position. So if I have a model that's tracking 80 points on your face and that I've spent millions of dollars of research with data scientists to go ahead and get those 80 points on your face, then I need to be extra careful because that's that's coming back to the secret sauce that's actually selling what's going on there. And then we have something out there that does you know, 30 points on a face. So if I'm really careful and I can get something that's significantly refined, I have to be really careful pushing anything to edge devices. That includes mobile apps. That includes all kinds of things. And we, we start to see this this problem again of reverse engineering to sort of like steal how someone's solving a problem that we haven't seen since, you know, the 90s and early 2000s, where people really cared how a function actually works and, and coming back and stealing how, the, how problems are solved. It's kind of cool. And I think it happens with every revolution. But you're right, there are already things in place to make browsers enforce secured files to uh, that I could mark something as secure. And then it would sort of stop the honest thieves from quickly downloading it. Very cool. Well, I've deployed some machine learning models in my life. And when I've done that, my collaboration has generally been with someone that has a title like DevOps or backend engineer. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of handing it off to a technical behind the scenes architect, I guess. That person generally has a very different skill set than a front end engineer, obviously some overlap. Do you envision a transition here happening where a machine learning person will instead be collaborating directly with the front end? Yeah, I do. I see that there's this pragmatic section of sort of getting people to develop a model aren't the people who actually want to put it in production and check the performance and and verify all the devices as well as push updates to it at all. And the truth is where we're going with this, data is so valuable. It's been referred to as the oil of AI. It's going to be very essential to inroad new ways to get that information back, not only to get that out there in an effective way that new model updates can roll out and new AI can roll out. Because I believe 
you know, iOS would beat everybody with Siri and voice control. And then, but they tied everything to the version of iOS. So every time they wanted to roll out a new Siri, they would have to roll out a new OS version, which was much more difficult rather than just doing the simpler update. So having models update is itself an amazing, cool problem that we kind of see already inside the developer world. I have a new version of this app. How do I do a new rollout of that? I have a new version of this web page. How do we do that? And it'll come in. I have a new version of the model. How do I go ahead and get in and put that? But it's also a bi-directional problem because as we figure this out, as people use the model and the progress of the model is important, we'll need metrics and then we'll need reports back that do not violate the anonymous or the, the personal privilege of, of the people to bring their information in and maybe their faces, because we're seeing that already. Some apps send people's faces to a server and everybody loses their minds because that's a terrible thing to do. So how do we anonymize the information that's been processed by the AI that's a very successful AI and bring it back so that we can still improve our process ongoing in more of a agile form? And that'll be federated learning and all kinds of cool stuff. So yeah, Absolutely. I'd say over the next 10 years, we're going to see a bunch of jobs spring up specifically with that. Very cool. Well, on the topic of deployments, uh, I like your hint that maybe uh, machine learning people can take a lot of notes and lessons learned from the maturity of traditional software development. There have been a lot of good best practices put in place. Yet at the same time, if you deploy just the code you've written for your app, it kind of works or it doesn't, right? You either hit a bug or you don't. <laughs> I don't necessarily know that that's the case in machine learning. You could have situations like the novelty effect coming into place. Uh, do you see any extra challenges or have advice for people who are rolling out models and want to be careful about it? Yeah, I believe that the people don't understand the problems as well right now that come out with that. And you're, you're right. Sort of like when we started this conversation, we talked about what's different in programming a function by hand and pro programming a function by data. And there was a moment of learning. And I think that when you get into the middle of it, uh, where you have it, a function usually says, this is true, there is a bird, or this is false, there is no bird. But there's another gotcha there for all of you developers, which is it's a percentage accuracy. It's a, it never says, I see a bird. It says, I am 72% sure that this is the the primary class of what this is, or I'm 75% sure that this is a bird. And you have to choose what threshold is going to be the correct threshold there. And then here, coming back even further in the future of being able to roll out uh, new models that might actually have different tensor outputs. They might actually have different feedback. Uh, and then they have they have issues, or maybe you might even roll out something with bias in it. There's going to be an important process there that says that you're not used to, which is going to be specifically, how do you find out and how do you get that back? And the further we go out into the future, the more cloudy it gets. But I think all these problems are the problems that we're going to be paying people to solve. Well, I suspect most listeners, most software engineers in general, will know of TensorFlow and what it does, even if they're not a user or an expert in it. But they might not be aware of TensorFlow.js. What is that distinction? TensorFlow is Google's answer 
of a framework specifically to do machine learning. And it's a machine learning framework provided by Google. Now, what ultimately happens there is that was built in the classic Python mentality of we have our mega servers, we have our server farm, we have all these other pieces that we can kind of work together to solve this very complicated problem. But when we took those giant server farms and we tried to put them on a phone, uh, we found that even though the model size is smaller, there's a big problem there that needs to be solved. And so you had to pay attention to what does a mobile device do effectively and how do you optimize for that? So there's the idea of saving models to a TensorFlow Lite model. Well, then ultimately, there's this problem of how do we go to web? So what's great about this is that TensorFlow has this large library of framework, and it's very Python-esque on how it's all done. But when we're going to bring it to web, we're not going to shove Python into web. We're going to use JavaScript, but the same functions are there it's trying to match parity of those functions to the the Python version. Just expect camel case instead of snake case. <laughs> so all the things that you learn when you learn TensorFlow should be able to apply directly to TensorFlow.js. And all the things that you learn in TensorFlow.js are most assuredly, um, except for obviously the parts that are very web-centric, will apply over to TensorFlow. And so this idea of the framework being able to access uh, shaders and GPU on websites. It's specifically a web-driven, mostly uh, TensorFlow version. But of course, it can run on Node, and it can run on React Native, and it can run on uh, a whole myriad of devices as well, because it's JavaScript. It goes where JavaScript goes. Well, my instincts, maybe this is just some sort of bias I have, but I think about going into Python, doing all my training, coming up with my model, and then the next leg of the relay race, I want to move it into TensorFlow.js. Is that a common pattern, or are people doing machine learning and the training exercise as well in JavaScript more and more? That is a great question. So you can do everything you want, in, and this is the benefit of the multiple frameworks. Uh, you could do all your training in TensorFlow, and as long as it's supported by TensorFlow.js, you haven't done anything that just came out in, in the latest TensorFlow, it hasn't been implemented in TensorFlow.js, you could then convert your TensorFlow model to a TensorFlow.js model, just like you could have converted it to a TF Lite model and put it on a phone that way. So you convert it over, and now you can actually just write the inference or the implementation of the model on a website. So actually, that's what I wound up doing for quite a few of my projects was doing the training side in classic Python, but then bringing it over and doing the actual just implementation, the show off in JavaScript, which goes wide very quickly. It's easy to share. It's easy to be, you know, we have the silly web. It's easy to put things out there like that and have tons of silly examples, but a lot of them were actually created specifically in Python beforehand. However, I will say this. Node, in some aspects, is outperforming Python in training. It doesn't have the large library of data science backing it over a long period of time, but we're seeing new things like Danfo.js and new models from Google and Hal9.com, where we're actually seeing people really push into what if you wanted to do all your data science in the JavaScript style and then go straight to JavaScript, where almost we'll be looking at implementing really cool training websites 
and then exporting the model, trying to go back to Python, trying to go back to original TensorFlow, go to TensorFlow Lite, and originally starting off with TensorFlow.js. So I'll say that that's like a new movement, but there's no cost in specifically going into one of the classics for a particular reason and then converting. With regard to the book, what sort of prerequisites or background knowledge should I have before picking it up? So I wrote it for two audiences. One, your web developer who knows nothing about AI. Or two, your TensorFlow expert who needs to go ahead and move their their AI project over to TensorFlow.js. And there's a little bit of redundancy or simplicity, but we had a bunch of test readers, people who have never done AI before and people who've never done web before. And both those audiences were uh, very happy and the success because they felt like they were getting, you know, the AI developers thought that they were getting a good pragmatic way to see the benefits of TensorFlow.js, how to test it, how to implement it, how to send it out, how to check it. And the web developers were learning a good bit about what the hell is AI and what's going on here, sort of like that initial splashdown experience. I'll say if I had to put numbers on it, I'd say 70% of the book is helping web developers get into AI. 30% of it is helping AI developers really understand web. But you can slide that number around depending on what your experience is. Well, let's put ourselves in the shoes of that web developer. Um, let's assume they're accomplished in their craft, but uh, all this AIML stuff is a bit mystical to them. <laughs> yes. If you just start looking up deep learning, you're going to read uh, about you know linear algebra <laughs> concepts and this kind of thing. How much of that do you really need if you just want to have the hacker's mentality here? Zero. No one. And, and I wrote a wonderful article for Hacker News that has, it's one of my most successful articles I've ever written. And it's called uh, Machine Learning Zero to Hero. So that article did phenomenal, but the PhD showed up and they got a little upset because going from zero to hero pretty much insults eight years of school for them or something like that. And so they, they're not very happy with that kind of idea. And so they, they poked holes and immediately people showed up and said, that's not you know, that's not the purpose here. That's not what he's saying. And and honestly, throngs of people showed up and helped identify what the premise of that was. And what I'll say for the book here is that no linear algebra. Now, if you're afraid of math, you got to get over it. As a computer programmer, that happens at some point, at, at some point, always. You can get into it. You could do a workshop. You can say, I'm never going to do math. You have to just make your piece, understand math shows up everywhere. and Embracing that means that you're going to be better at life, you're going to be better at programming, you're going to be better at all these things. But I don't ever hit anybody over the head with anything harder than basic calculations like cosine, like basic trigonometry functions that you don't even have to understand. Well, maybe we could zoom in on your John Cage example. Uh, oh, if Nick Cage. Someone, oh, so, yeah, John Cage would be totally different. <laughs> John, Johnny Cage, I think that's a Mortal Kombat reference, yeah? <laughs> oh, I, John Cage, the composer, was where I was oh, headed. But well, yeah, you, Nick Cage. This, this, I feel the culture difference between us, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I let's take that then as the example. What if I wanted to set out and do my own uh, 
cage example and build that up. And I didn't have the ML background. You mentioned grabbing photos. I could figure that out. I can do some web crawling. What does it take to actually wire it up? How much ML do I need to bootstrap myself? So for identifying the the person's face, the first thing here is that there are already existing models. So you have to understand what the AI is doing. So there's a fantastic uh, article by, I think, Fun Machine Learning, which is what, what is facial identification actually doing? And so what actually it does is it goes in and identifies key points on the face. And then for facial verification, there's this moment where you actually realize a normalized face, those key points on the face, despite how much I contrast and contour my face and how many funny faces, even if I'm Jim Carrey trying to make really fun faces, those average of all those points is somewhat uniquely identifying for me, that those would be at those distances from each other. So simply doing the AI gives you a set of points. And then you would just use basically the distance formula, which we all know. Uh, well, if you don't, then that's okay. There's lots of libraries out there already doing it. And you do a distance formula for those points. And then that would give you a sort of range of error to say that this person is person A versus person B. And then you can identify how much error those points can have. So that is a fantastic way to go ahead and train to get what the average points. If you've got you know, 200 photos of Nick Cage... And then you've got the average of all of his points and all the crazy faces that he makes. That's going to be a unique identifier. And so that's a blog article running a model and running a function away from creating a face verification process. It sounds super alien because this is the first time you've ever thought to solve a problem that way. But that's not very hard. Well, only 200 photos is very practical, but it seems too low. How can it work on so sparse a data set, really? So the model that was doing all the heavy lifting here was the facial data points, being able to actually find those those key points on the face. And training that model, that model was trained with hundreds and thousands of images of tons and tons of different people. And those models were run through bias detection and all kinds of other problems. And so there's ones that people have trained themselves that are out there. And as well as Google, I think, has quite a few blaze face face mesh, a couple other things where they're giving key points on faces that they've sort of put their stamp on from Google Brain Team. And those saw server farms and hundreds and hundreds of computers. It's sort of like when we take a look at GPT-3, where someone can use this sort of, if you've heard of it, they could ask it to write a story And I can use the benefits of GPT-3, the actual use the function and the model now. But to train GPT-3 was estimated $12 million worth of work. So (laughs) the trick that I'm saying here is that for the facial verification example is an excellent key point face model that you can rely on that will consistently find those key points on the face That is the heavy, heavy, heavy lifting that we're getting from the data science community. But now what's to stop us from making practical uses of it? Well, I like the idea of, I guess, standing on the shoulders of giants in that way. In what other aspects can we take advantage of that with TensorFlow? Great question. I have a really fun exercise I do in the book where we train 
how to identify what house you would be in for Harry Potter in one chapter. <laughs> so uh, if you draw a badger, you go to Hufflepuff, a raven, you go to Ravenclaw, serpents uh, for snake, and then a lion for Gryffindor. And we train that on, I want to say, like uh, 10,000 images of drawings for, for those particular animals. And that does a lot of the stuff there. But then what happens is we do this thing called transfer learning, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but not everybody is yet. Transfer learning is taking an existing model and reappropriating it for a new purpose using a lot of what it's already learned. And so what we do in the next chapter is take that and make it identify Star Trek insignias. Is this a Klingon symbol? Is this the Star Trek setup? Or is this the Ferengi is the three things that it's looking for? And we do that with a really small data set of, I think, a total of 50 images total. Super small data set, but we're standing on the shoulder of our own giant from the previous chapter. So transfer learning is a great way to take models that do something and just change them a little bit. I kind of think it's like uh, the stack overflow of coding. <laughs> you find something that does almost exactly what you need, and then you modify it a little bit so it works. So there's sort of an intrinsic risk you take on in a project like that of what if for whatever reason you just can't get it going? The uh, model can't converge. Maybe it's not enough data. Maybe the question is posed in you know, not the right way for ML. ML is a bit of a black box when you deal with deep learning. Do you have any guiding principles for how you manage that risk, especially in light of doing it for potential client projects? Absolutely. What you want to do is you want to identify how low you're going into the process and whether or not you've done it before or anybody's done it before. The lower you're going into it, the more you need to actually set aside an R&D budget. If you have an R&D budget, it's a little bit of an understanding with the client that this is going to tell you how close we can get with what you have. This is going to tell you what's going on here. And the deliverable of a happy R&D budget is this is where we're at. This is where I think we can get. And this is a just a meeting of the minds understanding that needs to happen there. Whereas if you were to use one of the services from Microsoft or Amazon for, for facial recognition, and you're not even going to have to get down and dirty, and you're going to actually, you don't even need to go on the client side. You can actually do an API call and call one of these mega five, you know, Fortune 500 companies to do it. Then the risk is off. Uh, there's this saying, no one ever got fired for suggesting IBM. <laughs> and that's true to the point where I know someone who told me a story recently that he had fighting IBM for a contract. IBM got the contract and subcontracted it to him for his rate. So <laughs> the person just went through IBM, paid the higher rate, but got the same work. And this is just sort of like one of those things. The higher up you go into where these things have been done before and, and teaching yourself, knowing what's possible and what's out there is extremely valuable because that helps you set the dial there saying, no problem, we can put va face verification in. No problem, we can identify what tools you have in your tool chest for you, or we can make sure that this person, this car is not damaged. We've seen like a ton of things and there's a, there's a lot of availability and high, high accuracy for that problem. When you start saying, we want to do that at this level, I want to see if you know the cans in the store are damaged or something new that, that we've never seen before. 
Well, it's important that you actually you build in the expectation and you build in an R&D budget. And now, if you're a nerd like me, that's your favorite thing. <laughs> well, the opportunity to deploy models through JavaScript opens the gateway for a lot of stuff, in my opinion. Model deployment has historically been one of the harder things for enterprise companies to accomplish. So that leads me to believe we're at the early days of uh, potentially a Cambrian explosion of interesting deployments. Have you seen or are you anticipating any cool innovations that are going to arrive soon? Yes, absolutely. I watch this all the time. This is my favorite uh, show, what's coming out and what people are doing. And so I have a website, ai-fyi.com, where it's basically just you're getting everything that I've found in a newsletter <laughs> that I've seen, and it's getting easier and easier to run my newsletter. It started off with really kind of digging into papers and articles and finding videos. If you just look at AI on YouTube, AI on TikTok, I don't have Instagram, but I guarantee it's probably blowing up there as well. If you just see these videos kind of coming out more and more, people are not only publishing new papers at a blazing fast speed, but now people are making entire careers just reading those papers and then telling you what they say and giving you examples and showing that. And then and new stuff is coming all the time. So the web world is where that's getting hotter and hotter because we love showing off what we made. It's easy. It's a link away. So I do see that there's this really cool thing called the TensorFlow.js demos that, that Jason Mays does. And so if you watch the made with TFJS hashtag, he actually has a monthly show where he's just showing cool things that people are doing with TensorFlow.js. Very cool. Well, the book winds up with a chapter where students or readers, I guess, will build the capstone project. Could be a cool thing to show off. For someone who's thinking about picking this up and walking through that process, what are they going to be able to create at the end of it? So in this process, I wanted to make sure that you create something that's not the classic. Now I'll say this. When you pick up a programming language, you write hello world. When you pick up AI, you pretty much, there's the MNIST data set and there's the property housing data set from the 90s in Chicago. There's like the classic Harry, like, like I'm not used to building those and I don't think they're very exciting. So I put a lot of effort into making a really interesting capstone. And that's this, that... I'm, I'm a terrible artist. I can't draw. I always wanted to draw, but I suck at it. But I can paint by numbers in a sense. And so I can kind of go to uh, any of those, teach you how to draw things and kind of paint by numbers. So what I wanted to do was get AI to tell me how to paint by numbers. And I thought it'd be really cool to make entire murals of dice, like actual dice that you roll so that you could have whether or not to put the dice on a five or a one or a two. And if you put a whole wall of dice together, it'll draw whatever picture it is. And I've always been impressed by people doing these kinds of things with post-it notes and wood clippings and all kinds of things. So I'm not creative enough to do that myself. I just asked AI to go ahead and do it. So the final chapter is writing the AI that really uses everything you've learned from the previous lessons to give you a photo and then it turns that photo into what dice would be necessary in order to go ahead and create that photo. 
And then I did that and I sent it off to a person at Google. Uh, <laughs> I actually did uh, the TensorFlow.js logo as designed by my final chapter in TensorFlow.js and sent it off to someone at Google and he has it hanging on his wall. So <laughs> very cool. <laughs> it actually works pretty nice. Well, remind listeners what the title of the book is. It's the O'Reilly Learning TensorFlow.js book, Powerful Machine Learning in JavaScript. And it's written by Gant Laborde, that's me. And then the forward's by Lawrence Maroney, who's a fantastic teacher, author, and general person at Google. And Gant, where can people follow you online? You could go ahead and find me on Twitter at Gant Laborde. And then I also have GantLaborde.com, where I mention all the places I go to speak, and we can possibly meet in person and nerd out about all cool things AI. Gant, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me.